0: Welcome to the courtyard. This is, our, this is our first Sunday morning out here in the courtyard. It's not quite done, but boy, have, have we made progress. Uh, we have some more amazing things that are going to be happen over, happening over the next couple of, of months. But I point pointed out not only because we have this amazing space to meet, but this is, I pointed out because this happens because of people that are faithful to volunteer and to work and make it happen. So... I just I want us to acknowledge that, at least in our hearts, um, that all that is that we're enjoying is because somebody worked to make it happen, including these heaters. Yay! Pastor Matt stole the last 12 online somehow. I don't know how he did it, but seriously, he, he got these heaters and he had help. And there's 12 tanks of gas in there and, and none of that happened. We didn't just go. Mm. And then there was heaters or these chairs or the tent or the, all the equipment the banners, all that takes place is because different people have volunteered to make it happen. And I love coming before the service and seeing the army of ants that are just, everybody's helping out and putting things, well, ants. Ants, uncles, cousins. That was Don's joke of the day right there. Cousins, nephews. I have cousins here that I haven't seen in a long time, so maybe that's more appropriate. And then afterwards when we're done to see that same army of aunts and uncles and all put everything back away so that we can do it again next week. Isn't that cool? That's the family of God. That is that is the body of Christ. So thank you for being here this morning in person or on the stream. I want you to join me, I want to invite you to join me in the book of Luke. And we're gonna be reading a lot this morning, so make sure you have your Bible. If you forgot, if you're under thirty you probably forgot what these look like this is called a book. This is a very special book. It has paper and has words in it. Or you might have it on your phone or your iPad. Get that out because we're going to be moving through some scripture this morning as we continue our study of the Gospel of Luke. This morning we come to Jesus has been arrested. He's been betrayed. He's he has been denied his his disciples for the most part have fled and he has been arrested and he is now on trial. And as you read through the Gospels, and we'll we'll primarily be in Luke, but we'll look at a few others. As you read through it, it gets a little confusing. There's a lot of moving parts, but let let me bring it down to just a simple level. There's basically two trials going on. The first trial is with the Jewish leaders to determine his guilt. The second trial is a legal trial with the Romans to bring about his sentencing or the consequences of his guilt. So there's two parallel trials that are, that are going along at the same time. The Jewish leaders need to find a way to get Jesus convicted of, of a crime. Preferably a crime against the, the state of Rome. And then Rome, because of its occupation, is the one who has the authority to then execute judgment. The Jewish leaders couldn't execute Jesus. They didn't have that authority. So they needed to kind of walk this line. Now I'll just say this ahead of time, they pretty much broke every rule that they said they believed in and enforced in their leadership of the Jewish people, that is the the religious leaders. They broke just about every rule that they had written down as to how a trial should take place. There were very specific rules and much of it was taken from the Old Testament you had to have certain witnesses. You had to have a certain number of witnesses. It had to happen certain times of the day. It couldn't happen after dark at night. And you couldn't have false witnesses. That was the big one. You couldn't pay someone to give false testimony. There were severe consequences to that. And they pretty much broke all those rules because their goal was to get Jesus convicted. And then they wanted to hand him to Rome so that Rome could execute judgment. So that's where we're at this morning in our year-long study of the life of Jesus, trying to bring him into focus. So here's my question, and and I want you to ask yourself this question now. I'm going to encourage you to ask it as we move through our time together, and I will ask you at the very end once again to answer this question. Who is Jesus? Who is he? Because what we're going to see this morning is that's really the question. That's really the question that is before, in the, at the center of both trials. And if we're honest, that's really the question today still, is who is Jesus? We can talk about religion, we can talk about denominations, we can talk about church, we can talk about faith systems, we can talk about morality, we can talk about all kinds of things. What's, what's going on in our world? What's wrong with us? And depending on who we talk to, we'll get different answers. Here's... What's happening? Here's why our world is the way it is. Here's why I'm the way I am. Here's what the answer is. Here's what we need to do. Here's the newest thing of what we need to do. And it always comes back to this question. If we're honest, who is Jesus? Who is he? If you'll join me in your Bible with me, I want to take a walk through this, this text and See if we can get some clarity on this this question. This is a a question that you can ask of any song that we sing. I was noticing, Sam, on the he is worthy. There's one part. There's, there's There's all these phrases, these statements. He's the Lion of Judah. He conquered the grave. He's David's root. He's the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. He's made us a kingdom of priests to reign To God to reign with the son he's worthy he's worthy of all blessing honor and glory and as you walk through any of our songs that question is a legitimate question to ask is who is this Jesus and this song is offering me some answers to that isn't it who is Jesus who is he join me in chapter 22 verse 63 remember Jesus has been arrested he's in custody if you will We don't know what it looked like if he was sitting in a chair with his hands zip-tied behind him. I don't think they had zip-ties yet. He's sitting at a table with the handcuffs at the table, and there's a detective across the table. You know, just kind of you can conjure up different pictures, right, of what that looks like to be in custody. He is in custody. He's under the control of the religious leaders' officers or guard. So the men, it tells us in verse 63, who were holding Jesus... They started mocking him. They started making fun of him, and they started beating him. Apparently, there wasn't uh, any rights given to those held in custody, at least not in the eyes of these particular guards. They started making fun of him. They started beating him. And then they blindfolded him, and they kept asking him, prophesy, You read the next phrase to figure out what it is exactly this game that they were playing. They put a blindfold on him. They blindfolded Matt. And then they took turns. Their question was, well, who did it? Which one of us six in this room? Which one of the guards hit you? Because after all, we've heard you're this prophet. So prophesy. Tell us, who was that that hit you? They were saying many other blasphemous things against him, attacking his claim to be the Messiah, to be God. And then this next phrase, catch this, when daylight came. Can you fill in the, between the lines or what that tells us? This wasn't just a five-minute ordeal, was it? These guys were having fun all night long with this prisoner, beating him, mocking him, making fun of who he said he was. And when the daylight came, the morning comes, The elders of the people who had been gathering, the chief priests, the scribes, they convened and they brought him, they came together as one and they brought him before the Sanhedrin. What is the Sanhedrin? The Sanhedrin is the the U.S. Supreme Court. Every, Every town was to have a Sanhedrin of 23 members, but in Jerusalem, there was the great Sanhedrin, so they had circuit courts, if you will, around their area, but in Jerusalem was the great Sanhedrin 71 members. And as you worked your, your legal questions through the process, maybe starting out between a neighbor or the synagogue, it moved and eventually went to the Sanhedrin in your area, your town. And if that couldn't get settled or people didn't agree on the, the outcome, then it made its way to these 71 men. And so they had been building their case all, all night while Jesus was being mocked and beaten because he was held as a prisoner. And they come for the Sanhedrin, and he's presented, and it says, "This they, that is the Sanhedrin. If you are the Messiah, here's our question. If you're the Messiah, then tell us. Here's your chance. Tell us. But he said to them, if I do tell you, you will not believe. Had he told them before? Yes, many, many times. Had he done it privately? Yes. Had he done it publicly? Yes. Had he done it in the marketplace? Had, he would spent the last three years answering this question. If I tell you here in this moment, you're not going to believe. See, Jesus knows what's happening, doesn't he? Doesn't he? If I ask you, you won't answer me. The phrase here means if I ask you to tell me the truth, you won't tell me the truth. I know what's happening. I know what this trial is about. But from now on, let me just say this. From now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. The one that you're putting on trial is going to be seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And they, their response, the Sanhedrin, they all ask, Are you then the Son of God? Are you claiming that you are the Son of God? And he said to them, You say that I am. You understand what he's saying there? He's saying, I'm on trial because I've claimed to be the Son of God. And by you putting me on trial, you're answering this question. You're validating my claim by trying to prove that I'm not. You feel compelled to prove to the public, to people, that I'm not who I say I am. So when you ask me, are you then the Son of God? You say that I am. You believe my claim is credible enough that you need to put me on trial and you need to get rid of me and they said why do we need any more testimony they said since we've heard it ourselves from his mouth he's claiming to be god if you have a conversation with someone, and I've had this where it's, well, I, don't, I just don't see it anywhere in the New Testament where Jesus claims to be God. He was a good guy. He was a good teacher. Who is Jesus? Well, oh, he's kind of a revolutionary because he, he talked about loving your neighbors yourself, and he, and he elevated the role of women in that, in that day. And, he, man, he was really shaking up society. And, man, he had a following. In the, but I, I just don't see where he, he says that he's God in human form. Well, there's many places you can go, but this is one of them. He's on trial because he claimed to be God. And to the religious leaders, that was blasphemy. Because they didn't believe God would come to us the way that Jesus had. All the way back to his birth. None of it fit for them. What they expected. He's on trial for claiming to be God. The son of God. In Matthew 26, Matthew's gospel, we read this. The high priest tore his clothes, verse 66, if you're writing these down, 66 to 68. The high priest tore his clothes when Jesus said, you say that I am and that I'll be seated at the right hand of the Father. He's blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? Look, now you've heard the blasphemy. You've heard from his own mouth that he claims to be God. What is your decision? And they answered, here's the verdict. He deserves death. And they walked over to him, and they spit in his face. And they began to strike him and beat him, slap him, Matthew tells us. And they joined in with what the guards had been doing, mocking him, physically abusing him. If we ask the Sanhedrin this question, who is Jesus? I think their answer, if they were honest, and I wouldn't expect them to be, but let's just pretend for a moment they would be. Their answer would be, well, he's, he's really a threat to our way of life. He's really disrupted everything. Things were, things were going exactly the way that we wanted them to. And then this carpenter from Nazareth shows up, and he begins to teach, and people begin to follow him, and they begin to see him as a rabbi, and they begin to see him as the, the son of God, and he does miracles. And he even raised a guy from the dead. And we began to really see how important it was going to be. It, it, we had to get rid of him. Yeah, but who is he? What does all that evidence tell you? What is all that, that you've heard and you've seen, what does it tell you? I'll tell you who he is. He's a threat to our way of life. Who he is and, and what he's taught. The values of the kingdom, this idea that the kingdom of God is near and what it looks like to be a leader, what it looks like to follow God, what it looks like to be right with God. We had it all figured out. And we had everybody in line. And then he came on the scene, and he messed it all up. Who is Jesus? Well, he's a threat to our way of life. Is he not? He's a threat to our way of life. Now, it's easy for us to look at the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the scribes, and go, Man, (laughs) Pharisees, legalistic people. That's not me. Morally superior people who think they're better than other groups of people. That's not me. People of of privilege, not caring for the poor. That's not me. It is me. I have plans. I have dreams. I have a a picture in my mind of what I want my life to look like. My marriage, my job, my finances, my health, my relationships. The car I drive, (laughs) you know, sitting right over there. The house I live in, how people see me, my reputation, on and on and on. And although they, they, didn't, they don't realize it, they actually are answering this question pretty truthfully. Who is Jesus? Well, he's, he's a threat to your way of life. He is coming and shaking everything upside down. And what you think you know, what you thought was what God wanted, he says, no, 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 I'm, I'm here to tell you. That in the kingdom of God, I I come with a message and and we're going to call it the good news. We're going to call it the gospel. It's good news. And God is pouring out his grace into the lives of sinners. Not morally superior, better people that are better than others or people that think they've got their act together and somehow God has to let them into a relationship with him or into his kingdom. He says, no, 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 I'm a threat to all that. I'm telling you that it's through the grace of God that you come through me to the Father and have a relationship with God. And they wouldn't accept it. To the Sanhedrin, Jesus was a threat to their way of life. Who is Jesus? In chapter 23, pick it up at verse 1, it shifts to a, a different primary character. Is that me? Or is that just that's wind? Okay you bear with that okay you comfortable You glad to be here okay just see if, if i'm talking to myself chapter 23 verse 1 the whole assembly rises up because they got their verdict we're all of one mind he's guilty he deserves death he thinks he's god nobody's god except god in heaven and so we're gonna go to the romans they bring him before pilate pilate is the governor of the area they begin to accuse him jesus saying we found this man this is so interesting, their tactic. It's actually a pretty good tactic. We found this man subverting our nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar. Isn't that interesting? They went from blasphemy, which mattered in that trial, to what they think is going to matter to, to Pilate, who answers to who? Caesar. And Caesar thought he was? There you go. He's, he's trying to keep people from paying taxes to the IRS. And he's saying that he himself is the Messiah, that he's a king. So Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, You have said it. You see this pattern in Jesus, don't you? <laughs> it came out of your mouth first. Pilate then told the chief priests and the crowds. Okay, so you say he's this king, that he's this he claims to be this Messiah, and I don't know, he seems pretty sane, he seems pretty, you know, here. I don't see any reasons, I don't find any grounds for charging this man. You have not proved your case to me that he's somehow subverting Caesar and keeping people from paying taxes. And so he tells them, I find no grounds for charging this man, but they keep insisting. He stirs up the people. He's teaching throughout all of Judea, from Galilee, where he started even to here. A little jealousy is running down the sides of their mouth. Is there, you know, I think, I honestly, I think it was hard for them to tell Pilate. This guy, man, I'm telling you, people like him more than us, is what they're saying. Matthew says this, Matthew 27, verse 11. Pilate's speaking, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you have said it. And while he's being accused by the chief priests and the elders, the picture is they're just talking out of order. They're just talking over themselves as Pilate's trying to figure this out. And he didn't answer the accusation. So Pilate says to Jesus, don't you hear how much they're testifying against you? But he didn't answer him on even one charge so that the governor was greatly amazed. That's not necessarily amazement in in a purely good sense. Like, wow, it was like, I don't get this. This is amazing to me. I've been in a lot of trials. I've I've overseen a lot of these kind of moments. And always, almost always, or always, the defendant defends himself or herself. And says, no, they're falsely, no, no, that's not. and And the defense gets to present their case, right? It's still today. The prosecution presents their case, and then the defense presents their case. And it's like Jesus, after this prosecution is all presented, Jesus says, the defense rests. Yeah, but aren't you going to answer any of this? Aren't you going to defend your... And Pilate is amazed. Now, in the midst of all this, there's this interesting moment that happens. It's recorded by Matthew just a little later in chapter 27. Pilate's wife has a dream. I love these kind of moments in the scripture. A, it makes it very real to me, but it's also just intriguing. His wife has a dream, and she comes to him, and she says, he is sitting on the judge's bench, and his wife sends him a message writes on a note and gives it to a servant, and the servant goes. So he's sitting in this courtroom, and he goes, "What? oh, thank you. And he opens it up, and it's from his wife, and here's what it says. Have nothing to do with this man. Have nothing to do with this righteous man. For today, I've suffered, a terrible te- I've suffered terribly in a dream. I've had a nightmare because of him. What is she saying? We don't, we don't know the details, but she's saying, I had this nightmare, I took a nap, and I had this nightmare, and, and that, that young Jewish rabbi that you're, you're, you have on trial, he was in my dream, and it was very unsettling. You ever heard of women's intuition? It's not a new thing. Men, do you listen to your wife's women's intuition? Can we turn the camera? I want Matt on the camera. When he does it. We learn the hard way, don't we, sometimes? He gets this note from his wife saying, and I just, I love, it's, it's intriguing to me, that he's trying to figure this out. He's trying to figure out how G, who Jesus is. He's amazed by this interaction and how he's not defending himself. And then the servant brings a note and he opens it up and it's his wife saying, don't, don't, just don't have anything to do with this righteous man. I'm telling you. So her nightmare did a couple of things that told her that Jesus was righteous. And she interprets it to tell her husband to say, I'm telling you, the best thing is just not to have anything to do with this. Let, let the Jewish authorities do their thing. Don't get entwined. In John chapter 19, this is all unfolding, and John records this piece of it. We have a law, the Jewish leaders said to Pilate. According to that law, he must die. They're trying to raise the stakes. Remember their goal? They've already convicted him in their court. Now their goal is to see him executed, right? That's the judgment they're looking for. And we know that as it plays out, they have one outcome that they desire. Because here's the law that he broke. He made himself the son of God. Did Jesus claim to be God, sent by the Father to take on human form and walk among creation? He absolutely did. There's no confusion. He's, he's not a liar. and He's not a lunatic. He's the Lord. And those are the three options, right? He's either a liar, and he was just lying to us, or he was a lunatic. He was out of his mind, and he thought he was a Messiah when he was, you know, he thought he was David Koresh or something. Or he's Lord of all the universe, and he took on human form, and they got it. They, Pilate, he, he makes himself, he presents himself as the Son of God. When Pilate hears this statement, he was more afraid than ever. So he's amazed, he's confused. He doesn't know what to do with what his wife, the note his wife sends him. He hears that this young rabbi claims to be God, sent by God. And so he goes back to the headquarters. He takes Jesus into a private and asks him, where are you from? Who are you? Who are you, Jesus? But Jesus didn't give him an answer. So Pilate says to him, you're not talking to me. Do you not understand how the court works? Do you not understand who I am, Pilate says, and the authority I have? You're not talking to me. Don't you know I have the authority to release you? I can, I can make this all go away, but I also have the authority to crucify you. I give the order, and you're crucified. Jesus looks at Pilate, and he says, You would have no authority over me at all if it hadn't been given to you from above. If God hadn't given you this authority, you wouldn't have it. This is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. And from that moment, Pilate made every effort to release him. What's the one thing that Pilate understood? It was authority. He understood where he fit in the authority of the Roman Empire. He understood what, why he had the job that he had and all the perks that came with it. He understood what his, his role was to exercise the authority of Rome to fulfill the wishes of Caesar. He was under authority, and he had authority to give to those below him. And when Jesus begins to talk about authority, it rocks his world. It rocks his world. If we, ask Pete, if we ask Peter, if we ask Pilate, who is this Jesus? I think he would say he's a mystery. He's a mystery to me. I've heard many, many things about him. And now I've interacted with him. I've heard the stories. I've, I've heard the, the reports that my soldiers have brought back that he fed 5,000 people I read one time. And then he supposedly rose a guy that was dead for four days, and he and he did this, and he healed this, and I've and the crowds that have gathered, and I get the jealousy. One of the gospels tells us that he gets what this is really about—that the Jewish leaders are are jealous, because I've heard these different things from different sources, and now he's in front of me, and he's a mystery. He's a mystery. Who is Jesus? He's a mystery. He's he's revealed himself to us so he's not we're not in the dark. But don't ever think that you've got him figured out. That you've got him boxed in. This is who Jesus is, and this is who I want him to be in, in my life. Because he will regularly do things like he did to Pilate to go, what? He'll never violate his character, he'll never step out of his mission or what he came to do or what he's doing even now at the right hand of the Father, but there is a mystery to him. And when we think we've got him figured out, and I, I can share with you in three minutes who Jesus is, I probably have forgotten that he's a mystery. Who is he? Well, he's 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 a threat to our way of life, he's a mystery. And then we pick up in verse, verse 6 that Pilate figures out, because remember, he wants, to, he wants to release him, but he's confused. His wife says one thing. He can't see grounds for execution, but he knows he's got these, these religious leaders, and they have a lot of clout with the public, with the crowds. What's he going to do? Well, he hears that Jesus is from Galilee, because didn't they just say that? He started in Galilee, and he's been, oh, he's, wait, he's from, hold on. He's from Galilee. Well, guess what? There's someone else. That, it's not my jurisdiction. Hey, hey, so he hears this. He asks that the man was Galilean, verse six, finding that he was under Herod's jurisdiction. He sends him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem during those days. Remember what those days are? What's happening? Passover is happening. Herod was very glad to see Jesus. For a long time, he had wanted to see him. Who is Jesus? I want to meet this guy. For a long time, he had wanted to see him because he had heard about him. And was hoping to see some miracle performed by him. So he kept asking questions. But Jesus did not answer him. Jesus did not answer him. I'll just, I'll say this about Herod. Herod was not used to not getting what he wanted. We have some in scripture, but we have ex- historical records outside of scripture that paints the same picture. Picture of this man. He was not used to not getting what he wanted. He kept asking Jesus these questions: "Do this, hey? Can you can you can you turn this plate of food and feed my whole court? Hey, see, bring, hey, grab that puppy, break his leg. Okay, can you heal that puppy's leg? Nobody went. Oh, I, I thought, wow, tough crowd. You know, can you heal that puppy? Can you? He kept. Can you do this? Can you do this? And Jesus would not answer him. Who are you, Jesus? Show us who you are. The chief priests and the scribes stood by watching this unfold, and they vehemently, with venom, they accused him as this is unfolding. So then Herod decides, I I know what I'll do. And notice it says, Herod, with his soldiers, with his soldiers, treated Jesus with contempt, mocked him, dressed him in a brilliant robe, and sent him back to Pilate. Jesus became entertainment for the meal, the gathering. And that very day, Herod and Pilate became friends. They had not previously, they had been hostile towards each other. How would Herod answer, who is Jesus? If he were alive today, we said, Herod, who is Jesus? Let me, let me reverse the question, who is Herod? You know, there's a lot of Herods in the Bible, aren't there? Right? You ever been confused? I'm not going to go through all of them, but I do want to focus on this one so we know which one it is. Herod the Great was the one that we we know in the Christmas story. Was alive during that time, reigned to just about 4 B.C. Then one of his three sons, Herod, or Archelaus, if I'm saying it correctly, is the one that Joseph wasn't willing to come back to Bethlehem when he came back from Egypt because he heard that this Herod was the ruler. And he knew that this Herod was like his father. The Herod in this moment, Herod Antipas, Antipas, is the one that Jesus called the fox. You remember that? We studied that in Luke chapter 13. Jesus calls him a fox. He divorced his first wife and he married Herodias, which was the wife of his brother. And you remember John the Baptist, rightfully so, had a problem with that. And so Herod proceeded to do what to John the Baptist? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, gave his head to his niece. This is the Herod that Jesus is now before. He's not a nice man. It is significant to me that, unlike what we've seen so far, leaders telling their soldiers to abuse Jesus, to mock him, to dress him up, to spit on him, to hit him, Herod joins in. That might be all we need to know about this man, that he joins in. He found some pleasure in taking part of how Jesus was being mistreated if i asked herod who is jesus I, I jesus i think he would answer me he's he's just a disappointment you know i i'd heard all this stuff about him i heard that that he could do this that he would that he would do this and then i had him in front of me and you know the hype the media i'm telling you he's nothing he wouldn't he wouldn't even answer he wouldn't do anything and so we 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 made the best we could at the moment we had some fun we beat him, we mocked him, we dressed him up, made fun of his claims to be a king, and so we dressed him up like a, like a joker, like a joke. He's a disappointment. Now hear me in context when I say this, because Jesus is not ever a disappointment. But when we answer this question, sometimes that's what we say in our head, that he's a disappointment. He didn't do what I thought he would do. He didn't answer my prayer in the way that he, I wanted him to. I asked for this, he gave me this. I've been praying for this, and I've just heard silence. Or I thought this was the best way to resolve this or what this should look like, and then he did something completely different. And sometimes we struggle with that. And I'm talking about as a, a believer, someone who has, has committed his life to Jesus, and I love him and I trust him. But there's times when I think, what are you doing? why are you doing it that way why are you allowing this to happen he's not a disappointment but he doesn't always act and respond and move in the ways that we can i say it we demand of him you know i don't want anybody to raise your hand you raise it in your heart but i'm going to raise my hand i have made demands of jesus i have told jesus this is what needs to happen this is the best thing to happen. And because he loves me and he's gracious, maybe he snickers a little bit, laughs a little bit, and then he does his perfect will. I think Herod would answer the question, uh, that, was, that was a disappointment. He didn't live up to the hype. So Herod sends him back to Pilate, verse 13 of chapter 23. And Pilate calls together the chief priests, the leaders, the people. He calls back, he calls court back in session, and he says, "You have brought me this man as one who subverts the people. That was your claim. But in fact, after examining him in your presence, I still have found no grounds to charge this man with the things that you accuse him of. And neither is Herod for the record. I want that in the record. He went to Herod, he came back, and Herod couldn't either, because he sent him back to us. Clearly, he has done. Nothing to deserve death. Don't miss that. That's Pilate's conclusion. He's done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I'll have him whipped. I'll make an example of him. I'm going to pacify you. I'm going to have him flogged, and then we're going to release him. For according to the festival, he had to release someone. There was this arrangement between the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders that at the festival of Passover, see if you're still with me, Passover, he had to release someone to them, someone who had been arrested, and they all cried out together, take this man away, release Barabbas to us. Who was Barabbas? Luke tells us he had been thrown, Barabbas had been thrown into prison for a rebellion that had taken place in the city and for murder. So Barabbas was actually guilty of the, the things that, that the Pharisees were accusing, the 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 leaders were accusing Jesus of but Pilate wanting to release Jesus addresses them again but they kept shouting crucify crucify him a third time he says to them do you do you do you feel Pilate's predicament he's got all these different voices this mystery of, of who this man is all these voices speaking into him and he is he is he's working It's interesting because he doesn't have to answer to anybody, any of those leaders. This is something he's choosing to do. A third time he says to them, Why? What has this man done wrong? I found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him whipped and release him. But they kept up the pressure, demanding with a loud voice that he be crucified. If you underline or mark in your Bible or highlight on your phone... This next phrase, I would encourage you to, to do that. Their voices won out. What does that mean? It means the, the pressure from the crowd is going to win the day. The demands of the crowd, the demands of the people are going to win the day, even over the authority of Pilate and Caesar. Pilate decides to grant their demand and release the one they were asking for, Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for rebellion and murder, and he handed Jesus over their will. In Matthew chapter 27 towards the end, verse 24, we read this, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere with the crowd, but that a riot was starting, instead he took some water, washed his hands in front of the crowd and said, I'm innocent of this man's blood, you see to it yourself. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. I think in this moment, if we ask Pilate who is Jesus, he would answer, he's a means to an end. He's still a mystery to him, but now he's a means to an end because he's, he's this conflicted man that can't see any reason legally to execute this man. But he also recognizes that a riot is on, on, on the cusp of happening. History tells us that, that Pilate would not survive maybe another 15, 20 years. And then he would lose his, his role as governor. In fact, he was brought in as governor because Herod, instead of Herod being governor of that area, Rome had brought Pilate in to keep the peace. These people keep rebelling, and they keep you know, killing our, guard, our soldiers, and they, they won't pay their taxes, and Judea is a mess. So let's send one of our own. And so they sent in Pilate to keep the peace, and he had not been successful at it. Some scholars believe that this, in his mind, based on the records, that this would have been the final straw with, with Rome. If another riot broke out and they had to send in more troops and loss of life and of Roman soldiers. For now, at this moment, for Pilate, Jesus is the means to an end. This is how I'm going to keep my job and avoid a riot, is I'm just going to do what they want and I'm going to give them Jesus. Even though he knows Jesus is what? He's innocent. He's innocent. I'm not trying to build a case for us not to hold Pilate accountable. But rather, I want us to understand the importance of this question. Who is Jesus? Because the way we answer that question determines everything else about how we live and how we relate, how we think, and how we talk, how we live out the life in 2020. It all grows out of how I answer this question. Who is Jesus? Jesus and we have these characters in this part of of Luke's narrative that reveal whatever we answer that question is going to show up in what we do in the decisions that we make Pilate was confused by Jesus he was a mystery to him he didn't understand how he was acting but he didn't see him as one having the authority that Jesus claimed or else he wouldn't have offered him up as an innocent man to be executed you may remember early in our study, earlier in our study, Luke chapter 9, Jesus is with his disciples, and he asks them, you remember, he says, what are people saying? It's this question. Who do people think I am? And they gave their answers, and then he turns his, his eyes, his gaze, if you will. Thanks for sitting in the front row, Peter. And he looks at his disciples, and he says, yeah, but what do you say? If I ask you, who am I, what would you say? And you remember Peter, right? You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one, the the son of the living God. You see, Jesus understands this is the most important question as well. How do I answer who is Jesus? Who, Kurt, do you say that I am? If you turn to, or trust me, either one, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, the author of Hebrews is telling the disciples, the followers of Jesus we need to run with endurance the race that lies before us anybody felt like you've been in a race the last 8 9 months cuz i'm not a runner obviously by by choice i ran in junior high and i remember how painful it was then and that lasted me into my till i go to heaven probably it's hard work and there's a course that you have to follow and, there, and there's these, all these things that you have to do to be successful at running. You can't be distracted by other things. How you dress even is important, right? And what you drink and how you drink. And there's all this strategy. Thinking of your dad and others that have run. He says we have a race that we're running, and we need to keep running this race with endurance, which implies what? That it's going to require... Okay, this is not a trick question. Let us run this race with endurance, which implies we're going to need endurance. Thank you. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. Who is Jesus? The source and the perfecter of our faith. Now hear this. Who for the joy that lay before him endured the cross and despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of God's throne. Have you ever read that and asked yourself, what is the joy that lay before him? What was the carrot? You know that phrase? I don't know we don't use it anymore, but we used to use a carrot to get a a donkey. I'm not saying you're donkeys, but we are. You know, to move, to go the right direction. What's the carrot? What's what's the finish line that Jesus describes, uh, uh, the author of Hebrews describes as joy for him? What was it that moved him? What was it that he... We saw just a couple of weeks ago, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and weeping, as it were, blood, blood coming out of his pores, Distress, and he immediately says, not my will, but your will be done. Why? Who is Jesus? Jesus is the one that looked at us and said, I will die for them. You're the joy. The relationship that would be made possible between creation and creator was the joy that kept him enduring the race don't, don't miss what we just read this morning in the last 30 minutes what he's enduring already and he's not even yet to the physically hard part the spiritual has begun hasn't it making fun of him mocking him how many like to be falsely accused I hate it I re- it really bothers me there's plenty you can accuse me of so accuse me of the things I've done but you know that oh, there's a mental anguish that goes with it and all that is unfolding and all what his body is already feeling like because of what's been done to him. Why did he run with endurance the race that was before him? Why was he willing to be the author and perfecter of our faith? Because he looked at you and he looked at me and said, I love those people and I will give my life for them. I will take their place. Who is Jesus. Hey, don't get excited that's not for everybody i do need somebody from my e-group though to go thank you dennis they better every piece better be there when we start maybe somebody else from our e-group besides dennis no. <laughs> my group this is my e-group now this morning who is jesus to you these words in from Paul in Second Corinthians 2nd Corinthians chapter five, writing to the church in Corinth, He, God the Father, made the one who did not know sin, Jesus, perfect, without sin. He made him to be sin for us. He took on himself my sin so that I might become the righteousness of God in him. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. We're looking at the pizza guy. I can't compete with pizza, I'm, I just, I know. If you're watching online, we just had pizza delivered for our e-group that meets this afternoon, and Dennis has given him a tour of the campus this morning. So, thank you, Dennis. Dennis, we're meeting in that building, by the way. Just, yeah, yeah help, yeah. Let the, let the guy go to his next delivery. That was awesome. Who's hungry? No, seriously, who's hungry? Yeah, okay. God made Jesus to be sin for us. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Son sitting at the right hand of the Father and the Holy Spirit is there, one, and the Father says, we need to do something about this mess. And before we ever existed, the world existed, they had agreement on this. Jesus said, yeah, I'll go. Yeah, but do you, Jesus, do you know what it's going to mean what you're going to yeah i do of course he did and he says i'll do that i'll take the sin of the world on myself i will bear the weight of sin i will experience the separation from the father i will die in the place of others so let me close with this verse romans chapter 10 who is jesus thank you for the pizza I left a tip when I ordered it. Because some of you are like, how rude. No, we left a tip when we ordered it. Okay, we're all back? Sort of. Romans chapter 10, verse 8 to 10. This is the message of faith that we proclaim. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the heartbeat of Crossroads Church and any other local church that is seeking to make disciples who make disciples. It's not man's word, it's not programming, it's not even all this amazing what's happening here this morning. None of this matters and none of it makes sense apart from this message of faith. This is the message of faith we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth, if you agree with God and you say it, you confess with your mouth. Jesus, here's the answer to the question, who is Jesus? Jesus is Lord. He's God. Eternal. And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So if you believe that he is God and you believe that he is Savior, and he can't be Savior unless he conquered death, right? He's got nothing to offer me. Right? Who is Jesus? He's not offering me a better life. He's not offering me a a moral code to live by. He's not offering me a self-help program that I can get what I want in this life. He's offering me salvation. Well, who does he think he is to to say that he can give me eternal life and, and remove me from the consequences of my sin? Because he's Savior. He's Savior because he rose from the dead. And he conquered death, which is the consequences of sin. So this message of faith we proclaim is that if one believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation... Who is Jesus? The simplest way I know to answer that question and how I believe it will be then lived out in our life is that Jesus is Lord and Savior. That's who he is. That's what he always claimed to be, whether we got it or not. Yes, he's going to rock our world and he's going to change things around. And yes, there's mystery to him. And and yes, he's going to do things differently than than we, we think. But he's not a means to an end. He's not to be used. He presents himself to us very simply, very clearly. I'm your Lord and I'm your Savior. And I'm asking you, Jesus, I'm asking you to respond to that. I'm asking you to answer that in your heart. Confess with your mouth. Believe in your heart. Nobody else can do it for you. I can't do it for my kids or my amazing grandkids, my amazing kids. But my amazing grandkids, for my wife, for my—I ne- can't do it for you. I can't, you can't do it for me. I can't do it for you. We all have to answer the same question: Who is Jesus? And he's pleading with us to respond in faith. You're my Lord and you're my Savior. I confess with my mouth. I believe you are God, and that you came, and you lived among us, and you died, and you were buried. And then you rose from the dead three days later. The Father through the Holy Spirit raised you from the dead and you conquered death. So you are now Savior. I want to invite you to come to the Lord's table this morning. We have the, we have the elements in the back. If you, were, um, if you were unable to get one or forgot, I want to encourage you to do that. If it's your heart's desire to partake this morning. What is this about? This is... This is answering this question. Who is Jesus? Do you need some? John, maybe you can grab a couple. There's a few. If you would like it brought to you, just lift your hand and we'll bring these to you. And as that's being passed out, give me your attention just for another minute. This is the answer to the question. Because remember, Jesus gave this to his disciples, that not bread and the juice. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. The disciples had not fully gotten it either yet, had they? They hadn't fully answered that question who Jesus was. There's some over in the back. Allie, did you get some? Allie still needs some. Yeah. And so Jesus is the one that asked us if you're a, a disciple of Jesus, you've embraced, you've answered that question He's my Lord and my Savior then it's interesting. He says, I want you to do this, and I want you to do this because you need to remember that. Does that mean I sometimes forget that he's Lord and Savior? Yeah, I do. Take a look at my life. You can find things there, things I say, things I do, thoughts that I have. If you could read my mind, you're like, wow, is Jesus really Lord and Savior? Because that doesn't fit with... He says, you need to remember that I'm Lord and Savior. And then he shows his grace, and he says to all... Who have put their faith in him. That's that's Peter, that's Thomas, that's the whole gamut, right? He says, Take and eat all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. That same night at that meal, that Passover celebration, he took that third cup. Thank you. That third cup in that meal cup of redemption and again speaking to that same group of disciples remember they're all going to run away one's going to deny one's going to betray they'll just be one of them at the foot of the cross he says this is my blood which is poured out for you it's the grace of god so remember that he's lord and savior but remember he's your lord and savior my lord and savior because of the grace of god not because you deserve it or i deserve it and we don't next week and we will the next No, it's because of the grace of God. He says, this is my blood which is poured out for you. All of you drink it and do it in remembrance of me. Amen. I know things are probably never going to be back to normal. But I do look forward to the day where we are not drinking... You notice there's no list of ingredients in there because nobody knows what that is but we have the opportunity to remember and that's what we should be thankful for amen Amen. be thankful for that so we're gonna we're gonna enter into a season of of celebration and I want to talk about just a little bit because you're going to experience it over the next four weeks it's something that we haven't done as a local body this church but you see over here a wreath and there's candles on it And the church is historically called this Advent, and it really grows out of the desire to make the celebration of Jesus coming to earth a season. Now, in the West, we call it the holidays, and holidays really grows out of holy days. Christmas originally was Christ Mass. It was on the fourth week of the Advent, these four Sundays, that the people of God intentionally began to think about what it meant that Jesus was willing to come to earth and be born as a child. And we started there last December. Remember, we started in Luke. We started in Luke two and then we went Luke one and came through and we're coming full circle and we're going to wrap up Luke as we come to the end of this year. And on December 20th, we will celebrate the birth of Jesus together. But what we're going to do over the starting next Sunday is each week, a family will come up and they will read some verses and, and draw our attention to either hope, love, peace, or joy and connect it to Jesus. And we'll light a candle each week. Until we come to December 20th, we'll have, we will light the fourth one. And we'll have these four lights as a reminder of the light of God coming into our darkness through Jesus Christ. So why is it significant? Because we need to remember, we need to remember that Christmas is not about stockings. It's mo- so much more than stockings and Christmas trees and lights and all these beautiful things that are amazing part of our celebration. But the whole celebration needs to point us somewhere. And that's what we've lost. Right, just take a look at your credit card statement on December 26th. You're like, what was I thinking? <laughs> well, I love the people, right? It's, all those are things that are a part of it. But we have minimized the advent, the coming of God to earth. And so we want, as a church family, we want to do some things like this to help us point our hearts and minds towards what we're really celebrating when we come together on Christmas morning. It's more than Santa Claus coming down the chimney on Christmas Eve, right? For sure. And Rudolph. I could go on, right? We've just layered all these things on top of Jesus coming to earth. So I wanted you to know that's going to be coming in the next um, four weeks as we celebrate that together.